This is Smart Women, Smart Power, a podcast that features conversations with some of the world's most powerful women. People have to understand that our democracy from its very beginning didn't include everybody. And very few people had the right to vote at its start. And we are still working on that to this day. We feature women who are breaking barriers and shaping the future of foreign policy, national security, international business and development. I'm Beverly Kirk, the director of the Smart Women, Smart Power Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. Vote Girl Vote is a new initiative focused on civic engagement for women. It began as a way of celebrating the 100th anniversary of women's suffrage and is now working to tell the stories of all the women who fought for the right to vote. I spoke with its co-founder, Kate Howard, about the importance of documenting this history. Kate Howard, thank you so much for being here on the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast. My pleasure, Beth. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's a real joy to be here. Well, 2020 is the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment, giving women the right to vote. And you started an organization called Vote Girl Vote to mark this anniversary. What is Vote Girl Vote? Why did you start it? And what are you hoping to do with it? Well, I came up with Vote Girl Vote, uh, the idea for it, in the, actually during the 2016 um, election. It, it literally popped into my head. And when I realized that we were going to be celebrating the 100th anniversary under the current presidency, and I realized that it was really important for me to celebrate and honor all of the women who came before us who didn't have the right to the vote, and I also realized how little I knew about it. And I and my co-founder got together, and we didn't do anything on it for a couple of years. And then about two years ago, we got together and decided that we were going to launch an initiative on this, a social media initiative. Uh, we live on Instagram and Twitter. We have a, a website now, and we've been growing over the last two years. And we started it because we just realized both of us, and she's a young millennial and I'm a Gen Xer, and we both realized how little we knew about this, about this history, and yet we both have been engaged in politics and history and civic activities all our lives. I've served as an election observer in the U.S. and overseas for years, and I grew up around voting. My mother was an election judge for almost her entire life, over 50 years. She would go every year to the poll. I grew up with election days being the day that mom left the house at four in the morning, came back at nine at night. And so we, we launched it on Instagram and Twitter. And we started posting about the history of women's rights to vote and our efforts to seek suffrage. What I'm hoping to do with it and what we're hoping to do with it, we've grown quite a bit since two years ago. We're still very small in terms of an Instagram following, but we figured out our space over the last two years. And we're the space between actually going out and getting people to go out to vote and the space of running for office. We're in that civic education space of how important it is for all of us, but especially women and girls, to be engaged at a civic level in our local communities, whether it's, whether it's at the very local level, the state level, or the national level. And there's an awful lot of things that we can do to empower ourselves beyond registering to vote and voting, which is obviously the most important. And there's just a tremendous amount of activity, and there's so many important races that we don't often not even aware of that are on the ballot. We tend to focus on the presidential election or the Senate election, the governor. 
And there's so many elections and so many races and so many uh, initiatives that we vote on that often don't get a lot of attention and many of those races go uncontested. So that's pretty much where we are with this and where we, where we hope to operate. We've really found our niche. It's right between the get out the vote and running for office. And we're about bringing the education of women's history and women's suffrage to the next generation and current generations of women. I'm just amazed, frankly, at how much, what a vast and very rich history it is. Well, let's talk a little bit about that history, because you've done a lot of research on the women who fought for voting rights as part of the project, as you just noted. What are some of the more interesting things that you've learned about these women and about history that perhaps we don't necessarily learn about when we're in school? I I have to say that, at least in my education, where I grew up, and I grew up in a really good public school system. I I was very fortunate growing up in downstate Illinois, and we had a very strong, I was in a very strong um, school system. And we did have some exposure to, I would call them history modules of local history and suffrage and civic education. But I can't really ever say that I had a comprehensive education about suffrage. It was probably more of a, of a snapshot of, oh, yes, and women got the vote in 1920. And I didn't think much of it. And in retrospect, I wish I had spent a lot more time with this. And what I've learned through Vote Girl Vote is actually how much of our history is, is lost and how much of it is told about and for, frankly, men. And, for example, I had a, a grandmother who was much older than me. I was the youngest. And she was married with children before she had the right to vote. She was one of the uh, very few fortunate women in, in her era who went to higher education and graduated from what is now Northwestern University. It was a women's college at the time. And she didn't have the right to vote, but she was expected to pay taxes. I never had a chance to talk with her about that because nobody ever told me that that was important. And I didn't understand it growing up in the environment that I grew up in, that that was something I should ask. I didn't understand that my other grandmother certainly didn't have a right to vote. Um, and it was, so I think what I've really learned about this in the, in the years is that these women really were tough and strong and were battling an uphill, were really fighting an uphill fight to get the vote. And what struck me with respect to the 19th Amendment specifically is how close those races were. The ratification of the 19th Amendment took 36 states. It was not a sure thing. In fact, they had pretty much given up. It was a lost cause when Tennessee scraped in with one vote on the 18th of August, which we just commemorated the 100th a week ago. And that was replicated across the United States. Twelve states didn't approve the 19th Amendment until after the fact or voted it down. There were, 40, there were 48 states in the Union at the time, and some of those are quite surprising. Vermont, Connecticut, and the reasons they didn't vote on it or voted it down are surprising. What were some of the reasons, if you remember, from the states that actually voted it down? Well, it's really interesting. There was anti-suffragists and there were pro-suffrage. And so a state like Connecticut, perhaps, they, Connecticut did not choose to pick up the ratification process. There was concern among those in office that if you enfranchised women for the, 20, the 1920 election, they would vote out those who would oppose suffrage because these were, not, these were not close votes in the Senate or the House necessarily. And there were some very ardent anti-suffrage for women 
politicians who are elected in office and people and certain legislatures didn't want to put a senator or, or a congressman in jeopardy. Others voted it down for lobbying reasons. There was a, on both the pro-suffrage and the anti-suffrage, there was racism and views of who you might enfranchise. What would happen if we enfranchised African-Americans was some of the arguments. And when you read some of the legislative history and some of the news articles, it's disturbing and appalling. You raised the issue of black women and how the 19th Amendment essentially gave white women the right to vote back in 1920. But for black women, indigenous women and other women of color, that right to vote came much, much later. And uh, you've pointed this out in your posts on your Instagram account. Are enough people talking about, as we mark the anniversary, about the fact that black women and other women of color fought alongside the suffragists at the time, way back in the day, but they didn't get the vote. They didn't get the right to vote until many years after 1920. The answer is no, we're not talking about it. We're not talking about suffrage for women in total enough. And you are absolutely right on this. And that's something that we posted about. It's one of the reasons we posted about the 12 states that opposed it. And it's one of the reasons or didn't vote on it, chose no action. And it's one of the things that I think is most striking about women's suffrage history is we saw a post on Instagram about what, what we call the lost women to history. You know, when we have in March, March History Month, um, Women's History Month, we don't know who many of these women were, these very courageous women who advocated. And while I'll say there's improvement right now, and I've been doing this now for about two years, in the last year I've seen more and more and more articles talking about the women we don't know and the women that we do know. And there's an an incredible book that's written by um, Professor Rosalind Pierblow Penn. She died two years ago. She passed away. And she's probably the first woman who wrote and did some really scholarly research attempting to go back to primary resources and uncover the names of the women um, in the African-American suffrage movement that we never learned about. And I say there's improvement because now people are much more familiar with Ida B. Wells and other women in the African-American movement and how they were treated within the movement. But there's a lot that we will never know. They are lost to history. After the 19th Amendment passed, and you're absolutely right, it legally gave women the right to vote. It did not give all women the right to vote. In practice and in law, there was a whole series of laws that followed the 19th Amendment in 1920. Up to present day, we continue to stop voter suppression, indirect and direct. And certain laws, for example, Hawaiian were enfranchised until they became state. Native Americans, Chinese Americans, Japanese Americans, and then, of course, the 1965 Civil Rights Act, the Voters' Rights Act, and then the 1964 Civil Rights Act. All are steps furthering along an effort to enfranchise every American voter. And there are just some fascinating stories. IDB Wells actually is from Illinois, which is my home state. And I remember briefly learning about just a, just a passing mention, actually outside of class, by a teacher in high school who said something about, oh, yeah, there were race riots in Springfield. I never knew what he was referring to until I started doing this history and doing this folk of project. And that's a history that we have to make much more public. People have to understand that our democracy from its very beginning didn't include everybody. And very few people had the right to vote at its start. And we are still working on that to this day. What's it going to take to get this history known? I don't know the answer yet to that. 
on that, but I wish I did. All I know is that we have to do more efforts like what Oak Grove is doing, which is putting the history out there, making it accessible in multiple formats, and getting it taught in schools as part of a curriculum. We were really fortunate this summer to have a fantastic team of young interns from um, several um, academic institutions working with us this summer. And at the end of the summer, what really struck me was we did an exit event and all Zoom virtual, but we had a gathering on Zoom. And I also did exit phone calls. And what struck me was across the board, every single one of these young women, smart, well-educated, well-informed, said, I didn't know the history. I didn't know any of this. This is 2020. In the middle of the 100th anniversary of commemorating the 19th Amendment, which enfranchised some, not all women. And they still are looking at us going, I didn't know this. There's a story I tell, um, and this goes across the board, not just with respect to suffrage, but with every issue of diversity, equity, and inclusion, and how it impacts different groups. I always tell the story to interns about how when I was a young Senate staffer in the early 90s, I was denied access to my boss on the Senate floor because I had the temerity to wear a pair of dress slacks. There was a dress code for women that I was unaware of. It never occurred to me going down to the Senate floor that I would have to have a dress or a skirt on in the 1990s. And I was denied access. And when I tell that story to a young, a young woman today, they look at me with the same bewilderment that I gave my mother when she said, well, the bank would have required my husband's signature if I wanted to do something down at the bank because I was married. And I find that shocking. So we have a lot more work to do, and I think all we can do is continue to do exactly what the Episode Vote Girl Vote and other initiatives are, to keep putting these stories out and putting this history out in different formats. And it can't just be around anniversaries. It can't be around an anniversary commemorating the 19th Amendment. It has to be part of our daily curriculum and our daily life and our daily stories. We have to increase the presence of all voices in daily in, in, in our daily life and our daily media. We don't have that enough. And that's something that has become very starkly clear to me as we've launched Vote Girl Vote, that it's absolutely important and imperative that more voices be elevated. The statistics are just staggering when you look at them. And it's every field, every industry, it doesn't matter if it's nonprofit, for profit, or government. We have too many under effort. We, we don't have enough voices that represent it. We aren't looking like America yet when we, when we look at our specific industry and fields. My opinion only. If I could just follow up quickly, are there any statistics that stick out that you remember and can share with the audience? I don't have the specific numbers in my head, but I was just listening as part of a post we did on the difference between the term suffragist and suffragette. And I went back to the movie Suffragette 2015 um, with Meryl Streep. And this is in 2015. And it was a, a really interesting interview about the movie Suffragette and how all the actors in the movie, all the people in, on the press conference, were talking about how they didn't know the history. So that's striking to begin with. And then very specifically mentioned the reviews of movies. And not to kick on them, but Rotten Tomatoes was, I believe, the uh, example she was using. And she was pointing out the disparity between, you know, we go to Rotten Tomatoes to get an idea of whether or not the movie's good and we want to go see it, correct? The reviewers for Rotten Tomatoes, the differences between the percentages of women reviewers and male reviewers was 
absolutely stark. I need to confirm the numbers here, but if I'm not correct, if I, if I remember correctly, it's something like a 70% difference in ratio. Mm-hmm. You know, 1,400 male reviewers, 167 or 199 women. I mean, it was just, these are the kinds of contrasts that we have in our everyday life. And so until we start putting diversity, equity, inclusion lens on things, and still we start, and what I always talk about, the gender lens, until we start looking at things through a gender lens, is this representative? Then we're going to continue to have information sent to us that doesn't include everybody's voices. I had joked a bit about with you uh, before we started this call about obituary. One of the things that Vote Girl Vote's been looking at is, and I make jokes about it, is that I read the obituaries. I look every day at the obituaries in major media publications, The Economist, New York Times, Washington Post, and I look to see who's being profiled, who's passed. And I can't tell you the number of days where you, where you, there just, there's not a woman. There are very few people of color. And I actually did the counts, and unfortunately, I don't have the statistics in front of me, but I actually did the counts for The Economist magazine, and it was staggering. It was just staggering. They just, they do a one obituary in the printed Economist at the end of the week in the back of the magazine. And again, there just simply weren't, was not enough diversity, and there weren't enough women represented. And we got some pushback when we reached out to The Economist. The comment was, well, you know, the people who are passing in this era, you know, they didn't do all that much significance in their lifetime. And that's the wrong approach to look at something, in my opinion, because it's not that they didn't rise to general so they're not obituary worthy. It's that they rose to colonel, which was the cap where they could rise in their lifetime. And what's the definition of success anyway, and who defines that? And that was worthy and important for the woman who rose to, to be a colonel at that time in history when that was the top level that she could achieve. Mm-hmm. It's certainly significant. Or that she could only serve for two, you know, two, three years because she got married and was an automatic, that's it, you're done, or pregnant later. And it was really interesting to me as I started doing this because one of the things that I noticed was you would look at um, the Washington Post, this is when the print papers were still there. I haven't been doing this for years because I had a, a neighbor who told me, read the obituary, so fascinating. And I remember looking at her as a 14-year-old going, you're crazy. And, but she's right. They actually are fascinating. It's a history lesson. And what really struck me in the, in the Post is as the greatest generation was passing in the 90s and the 80s and the 2000s, you would often see a picture of a woman who might be in a World War II uniform. And that was often the most important, significant, that's something that she might have looked back in her life as one of the most important times of her life, one of the most important contributions she made. She served the country. She didn't serve in combat. She served behind the lines. She might have been one of the first pilots, trailblazing women pilots, transporting airplanes back and forth across the country in order to free up men to serve overseas as fighter pilots. And... Those are stories that we need to, we need to uncover and we need to, there shouldn't be a day that goes by that a paper shouldn't be highlighting a trailblazer who made it a little bit easier for me to get ahead, a little bit easier for you to get ahead and push that feeling a bit further for all of us. Let me ask you about something else that you've been involved with, and that's an effort to get states to change their statues in the U.S. Capitol building to have more women represented. Is that also part of Vote Girl Vote? Yes, absolutely. And uh, there's a statistic. I, I blanked on it. I should have used that one immediately. Each state in the, there's some, in the capital, 
There's something called the National Statuary and Hall Collection, and it's fascinating. And you and I have talked about this over the last year together for some of the things that I found out about Kentucky and Tennessee and other states. Each state is allowed to send two statues, and, they, and the state picks and chooses. And there's some fascinating stories here. So you have 100 statues in the National Statuary Hall Collection. It's all managed by the architects of the Capitol, but the statues are selected by the state. There's 100 of them, and there's, there's other statues and busts and portraits and other types of artifacts and images being represented to represent our history. But the National Statuary Hall Collection it has it currently 100 statues, nine of which are women. Nine. Last I checked, we're over 50% of the population and have been probably since the beginning or maybe not, maybe not the early years. It'd be interesting to find that out. Of those nine, only two are women of color, both Native American women, and the women tend to be, these nine statues, tend to be states west of the Mississippi River, which makes sense because if you think about it in the early years, the Western states led on a lot of this. They led on suffrage. My speculation, there were few, fewer people, a lot more opportunity to take advantage of, to rise and grow, and, and to take a space where you might not have taken that space in a more populated Eastern state and where the rules and the societal norms were less present because of necessity. So only nine states. Now, there is a move to change this. Florida, in particular, is sending Mary McLeod Besson, who is a suffragist and a noted African-American educator, really fascinating woman, and they are replacing, swapping out one of their statues. Other states have preceded them doing that. Helen Keller was uh, switched out in, um, I believe, Alabama. Utah is sending their first, uh, the first woman elected to a state legislature in the U.S. to Washington. But this is a big campaign to do it, and it takes a lot of time. It takes money. It takes effort, and it takes initiative. And there's some fascinating stories about this. We've done some research on this. I mean, we haven't published on it yet. But I'm intrigued about Kansas because... Over a decade ago, two decades maybe, two decades, Kansas made a move to replace their two statues. They chose to send, I believe it was Eisenhower and Amelia Earhart. And Amelia and Eisenhower was sent almost immediately, raised the money, got the statute, swapped it out. Within two, three, four, five years, it was done. Amelia Earhart sadly went missing in action again. And she's never sent. And don't know what's ever happened to her. And I, there is some irony there when you think about it. There is definite irony there. <laughs> yes, I mean, it's, it's kind of funny. I mean, sad, but it's funny. I have a bit of a dark humor here on this one. But uh, if you think about this, every day our legislatures and our staff and our congressional visitors in normal times, not COVID times, walk by Statuary Hall and there's just very little representation. And some of the history of those that are there is pretty grim. It's a, it's a, it's a difficult, it, it is grim. And I think, I think how many times every night we see the newscasters casting from Statuary Hall and does it look like America? Is that what America is? As we wrap up here, uh, my final question is, has your outlook changed since you started Vote Girl Vote? Um, and, and you've said that you view everything through a gender lens and instead of looking for Looking uh, in the room for who's there, you now look for who's not there. Um, uh, talk to me a little bit more about how your outlook changed and and what you think about the future for women and whether or not you're optimistic that the issues that you identified here will change. I think we're seeing that change now. And yes, I am optimistic. I'm very hopeful, actually. 
um, I know how much farther things are than they were for um, the women, all the women who advocated for my right to vote. I view my vote much differently now. I take it much more seriously. I take my uh, engagement, this is for me personally, I take my engagement, I'm, I'm beginning to realize it's not enough to vote. We don't vote enough in this country. Our statistics are low on that. Um, not enough of us who are eligible voters vote or vote regularly. Um, I, I've been guilty of that myself in the past. And, or guilty of it, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I don't believe in shaming. But I think it's absolutely imperative more now than ever that we vote. It's important, imperative that we engage in the electoral process, that we take our role as election observers, as poll workers, as election judges. Um, and by the way, for anybody who's interested in it for 2020, it's an absolutely important thing to do, and um, it pays. Most of these jobs will provide um, a salary for the time that you're working. Um, election observers, no, but um, that tends to be um, volunteer uh, election poll workers and judges, and it's a really serious job. It really brings democracy home. Uh, yes, I do look at things differently. First of all, I thought I, I've learned so much about suffrage. I now understand just what a complex issue it is and that it's a work in progress. I've always said in my work overseas in places like Afghanistan, and that's actually where my gender lens really began when I started working overseas in other countries. Um, and it started even before that when thanks an office on the floor for wearing dress slacks. Um, <laughs> so, uh, which now I'm, it's, that made a very strong impression on me. Um, but it's, I, I do look at things through a gender lens. And I, it's, not, it's, not a negative, it's not a negative way of looking, but I look in the room now to see who's there, and then I ask the follow-up question, who's not here, who should be, or who we want in the room? And my attitude is we need everybody. And I've, I, and I've, I've definitely, just learning this history has really been an incredible um, eye-opener for me. And it's and it's strengthened my resolve that we have to we have to bring this to everybody, um, as many people as we can, and not just vote girl vote, but as an obligation from all of us. Um, civic education is so important in this country, and civic engagement. Everybody needs to feel that they belong, and we need to see ourselves in government and in every field. We it, this is not restrictive to government. This is in every industry. We have a long way to go still, despite all the positive progress, um, to making sure that everybody feels like they belong in, every, in, in, in the field of their choice and is welcomed. Yeah, and, it's, it's, and, and you know this as well as I do, Beth. I mean, I realize this is an interview, but we've talked about this before. That it's, you know, there's, it takes a lot of courage to walk into a room where you're the only person who's there that looks like you or comes from your background, comes from your socioeconomic status, your whatever your associations are. And um, I'm excited about Vogelbot. I'm excited about the fact that we've had the opportunity to, in our, in, in, our, in our method of choice, Instagram, to post out and really provide uh, insight. You know, I, I close with one other thing. We're not done with this, and it's much more recent history than people think about. Um, but we are getting better. We, we, I, I am optimistic and I am hopeful. Um, but it's not done. And democracy is a work in progress.
Kate Howard, thank you so much for being here on the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. And thanks to you for joining us. Subscribe to the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to good content. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Smart Women, and I'm at Beverly Kirk. Thanks for listening. See you next time.